Hello, I'm Maddie Savage. Welcome to a brand new series of The Stockholmer, the podcast that brings you inspiring short stories from Sweden's innovative capital. The Stockholmer. I think it's typical in the West just to see a happy life is a long life. Maybe it's not the length of your life that is most important, it's what you make of each day. Age 25, Robin Trigg was the youngest Swede in history to climb Mount Everest after selling everything he owned to fund the trip. He reached the summit for a second time this summer and told the Stockholmer why he'll keep risking his life for his passion. The Stockholmer. Robin, thank you so much for meeting with the Stockholmer on your lunch break as well. Was that here in your office where you do your day job? Uh, you're working at a content and video production company. It's in the, the cobble streets of the medieval old town Gamla Stan here in Stockholm. A big contrast to the, the tents and the huts where you spend a lot of your time. We'll talk a bit about those two very different worlds in a moment. But first, I'd like to start right in the middle of your story. Everyone knows it's an amazing achievement to to climb Everest. A lot of people dream of doing it. So take us there. What is it like to be that person? Uh, It's amazing, of course. I dreamt of it since uh, I was a small boy and all of a sudden you stand there on the highest point on earth uh, and you feel so small and tiny. Also a bit scary, of course. It's high. (laughs) I mean, but what does it feel like? What are the physical sensations uh, and the mental stresses that are on you at that time? Uh, of course, you're really, really, really tired. And I try to just just not be too happy. You always need to stay focused. You always need to be in the moment. And it's so easy when you come up just to relax and, and you have this feeling in your body that you made it. But uh, it's really, really important to, to stay focused and calm down. After that, you can enjoy it 100%. But what drives you to do it? A lot of people have personal challenges. I'll do a triathlon, I'll do an Ironman, I'll I'll climb up Sweden's highest mountain or the UK's highest mountain. Only around 7,000 people ever have got to the top of Everest. So what drove you to decide, I'm I'm going to be one of those people? Uh, I think it's a lot of stuff. Um, I started for like more than 10 years ago now. I've just finished the school and I I wanted to see the world and I didn't know what to do. Uh, And I find a job on Corsica. I climbed with a lot of friends and, and I was really, really bad at it, but I loved it. And um, yeah, I continued climbing and, and in 2011 I, I was able to go to Everest for the first time and, and to be the youngest Swede ever to reach the summit at that point, so it was uh, amazing. What preparations did you need to do then before committing to climbing Everest? I, I think I left everything for, for doing Everest the first time. I quit my job, uh, I had a... Uh, relationship for like four years that that yeah you 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 need to go 100% in to do something like that so it cost me everything financially it's like 500,000 Swedish crowns almost but um, after I I succeeded in 2011 it was a lot more easy because then I showed everyone that I I really could put it off and um, after that I got my sponsor contracts and everything but if you want something enough then, then you reach it, I think. You just need to fight hard. So that first trip was completely self-funded? It was, it was. Uh, and uh, last year I was trying to go for Shoyu, the world's sixth highest mountain in Everest, in one go. And uh, I sold everything. Uh, I didn't want any sponsors because I didn't want to have like any pressure. I just wanted to do it because I think it's really fun. And then we had this big, huge earthquake and... Uh, in like 10 seconds, everything was gone. Everything I've uh, fighted for, all my money, 
and 9,000 people lost their lives in Nepal. It was the biggest earthquake to hit Nepal for some 80 years. Talk yeah. us through where exactly you were when when you were aware of what was going on. Uh, we were on, uh, at Choyu, at the foot of Choyu, at like maybe 6,400 something meters. We were actually going for, for Camp 1 that day, but the weather was so bad, we didn't see anything. It was just a lot of snow and a lot of fog, so... We decided to stay in our tents and just drink some tea and relax. And uh, yeah, all of a sudden the the ground just started to shake a lot. And first we thought there was kind of some kind of avalanche because we knew there was a lot of ice and snow above us. But a few seconds later, everything just fell down and, and uh, we were just lucky enough, nothing hit us. Yeah. But there was devastation all around you and in the towns and villages that you were close to at that point. Talk us through what you could see and, and the kind of impact it had. Uh, first, it was kind of strange because we didn't know anything. We, just, we were just stuck in the mountains. And uh, I think it was maybe one or two days later when I got the first report from Sweden that people told me about the big disaster, how it looked like in Nepal and Kathmandu. And in, in, and then, you, of course, you were. it was hard to, to take in, I think. And we had all these Sherpas around us that, that got the reports from, from their families, from their homes, everything was gone. Yeah, what, what do you say to someone who just lost everything? You can't say anything. You can give someone a hug, you can, but you can't do anything to make it better. So in a way you felt horrible, of course. But um, I know that I, I climb a lot with a, a guy named Chiring Dorje Sherpa and also with a guy named Pemba Sherpa. And if something happened to me up in the mountains, they will never leave me. They would never, ever leave me. So, of course, I, I stayed and helped as good as I can. And, and a lot of my partners, like Hoglefs, was very quick and, and sent a lot of equipment for us so we can go around uh, with helicopter and with the cars and try to help as good as we can. But, you know, it's impossible to do enough because it's such a big country. And now they lost like 80% of, of uh, all trekkers. So you should definitely go there just to trek because now you're almost alone and you have one of the most beautiful trekking routes in the world. I mean, you went back to, to complete that mission to climb those two mountains in one go. Just a, a year later, a lot of people would have given up after the extreme experience that you had being part of that earthquake. What made you go back? Uh, yeah, but as soon as I got back home, people started to ask me, how does it feel to fail? This is your first time failing. And, and what is failing? For me, it's like maybe you not reach your goal every time, but just keep on trying. It's for me not a failure. So instead of because I sold everything last year and I couldn't afford to go again, but all my sponsors and a lot of friends stood up for me and helped me. So I got the chance again, and, and it was kind of nice because you, I felt that I had it in my body and that I was really, really up for it. So it was awesome just to get the chance again and, and to show everyone, and especially to show myself that I was able to do it. What kind of training does it involve? I mean, how much do you have to go to the gym? How many small mountains do you need to climb <laughs> before you're you're prepared enough to go and climb Everest and some of those other huge peaks? Uh, but for me, it's kind of good because I also work as a mountain guide or... Yeah, so I have groups all over the world. So I was a lot on Kilimanjaro and uh, a bit in Russia. And, and so for me, working is a kind of, of exercise. Uh, and then I ate a lot. I, I, I gained like 15 kgs. <laughs> uh, and now I lost everything. Now I'm skinny again. So it's a really good way to, to lose weight. <laughs> 
but yeah, I, I I did everything I could. Uh, you have a, a small hill here in in Stockholm called Hammarbybacken, and it's 80 meters above sea level. And I, I uh, went up and down for 8,884 meters. Uh, so it took like 23 hours and and 43 minutes or something. In one go. Yeah. But it was just mentally to prepare. I was bored after two hours, <laughs> but I, I just wanted to show myself that I could con- uh, continue going, even if I was tired. And, and uh, I think 80% of, of an Everest climb is in your head. Do you think everyone should be able to do it then? I mean, there's always been criticism for years about who should be allowed to climb Everest. You know, should it be the people that are able to afford it? Should it be the most technically adept people? Or, or should it be anyone that can, can raise those funds, however? Of course, you need to be prepared. You can't do as it is now. Everyone can go. You don't need to, to, to know anything. You can just pay for it. And that's kind of strange because a lot of people is dying because of it. Uh, so, of course, you need to have some kind of, of um, background of climbing and you need to know like the basis, basics, not only for your own sake, but for everyone else. What have been the worst moments for you when you've been up on the mountains? I mean, the earthquake's the obvious example, but... You make it sound really easy. You make it sound like <laughs> I did some training and I saved some money and I sold my stuff. But I mean, I've been in the mountains in Nepal, nowhere near as high. And, you know, you're freezing cold. You are so exhausted. You're eating strange food. Maybe this is something that just comes easy to you. But I want to know a bit about the hard bits, the hard stuff. I, I usually just like coming to a mountain, I've already succeeded because it's so hard for me or it has been so hard for me just to get the chance because I don't come from like a rich background where I, I never had anything for granted. I needed to fight for everything. And I still try to, to take care of that feeling, just to enjoy it and just to like it. And of course, sometimes it's cold or sometimes you're hungry and sometimes, but it's the most beautiful thing in the world, I think, just to open your tent in like 8,000 meters and, and you can see the whole world. You touched a little bit on some of the personal challenges, though. I mean, how do you deal with the the mesh of these two worlds? The world where, you know, you're you're working at a production company in Stockholm, going out with your mates for drinks, and then a couple of months later, you're in the mountains for three months, away from all of that. Yeah. No, but I think that's that's uh, like the inner core of the of the life. I have my own company, so... I can edit a bit when I'm here in Stockholm and my body needs to just relax and recover. But um, yeah, otherwise I'm just out in in, uh, in the mountains. And I love the contrast of being like working as a regular guy or, or not having this pressure on you and to be out in the mountains and be in the Himalayas or in Africa. or, or But um, it's of course, it's the hardest part, especially for my family. But they're still happy for me because they know how happy I am. I'm still young and, and uh, I want to keep going for a few more years and of course it's it's dangerous but it's like shearing says Nepal is one of the most poorest countries in the world and, and you don't live until you're like 80, 90, 100 years but maybe it's not the length of your life that is most important it's what you make of each day and I think that people that die when they are like 30, 40 can be more happy or have a better life than someone that's 100 and dies. Uh, I think it's uh, typical in the West just to see a happy life is a long life. But for me, a happy life is when you do what you want as good as you can and really learn something about it and make people happy. And uh, I'm not the best at it, but I'm trying. 
You've been listening to The Stockholmer, an independent production by Maddie Savage. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love you to talk about it on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Support for this episode came from Mundus International. Thanks to Benoit Derrier for production assistance, our PR team Hype United, Simeon Ghost for permission to use their music and Richard Stevens for designing our logo. Thank you.